This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. We've come to the end of our Advent series this year, which has been focused on one of our core pillars at UPBC, our message. Our message is that God is, God speaks, God saves, and God sends. I want to make sure and pronounce that D. Someone asked, are you sin? Sins with a D, yes. We're not going to begin our message with heresy. God is. We saw that we thought, um, we saw how God is as we looked at his sovereign rule and reign through his anointed king in Psalm 2. We've seen that God speaks and has spoken throughout salvation history. His word is faithful and true. Last week we saw how God saves, particularly focusing on the Davidic covenant, God keeping his covenant grace in sending David's greater son to die for his people. And this morning we'll, we'll be considering, our, our goal is to think about the reality that this sovereign speaking, saving God is also a God who sins. And for that, we turn to John chapter 20, and I'll begin reading in verse 19, and follow along with me. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, here we are in another room thousands of years later asking that you would come to be with us. Would you come and speak to us and fill our hearts with your peace, your grace to us. Show us your scars. Would you ignite a joy in us as we look at your face? And send us, Lord. Send us to be faithful. Faithful witnesses to this grace that we have received ourselves. We pray you would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The centerpiece of John 20 is the resurrection. It begins in verses 1 to 10 when Peter and John see the empty tomb and John believes. And if you follow along in verses 11 to 18, Jesus reveals himself to Mary Magdalene and sends her to tell the others that he's alive. And then in our passage this morning, Jesus appears to the apostles in this locked room and commissions them into the world. Verses 24 to 29, Thomas sees Jesus and believes. But Jesus says that 
it's no longer necessary to see me in order to believe. The message that I'm going to give, the apostles' message will be enough. Look there in verse 27. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then right after that, you have John's summary purpose statement for writing his gospel. Verse 30, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So often we get fixated on kind of the last words Jesus gave from the cross, those seven sayings that we sometimes think of as his last words. But Jesus has a lot to say after he has risen from the grave to us. And here we see the risen Jesus with scars on his hands and feet inside, speaking the words of life. And it's here that Jesus not only is going to connect his covenant promises and teaching of the Old Testament with his death and resurrection, but also his ministry with that of his followers. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So this is where Christmas, as the Father has sent me, connects with Easter, so I am sending you until the time when he comes again. God sends. It's the main point of the sermon today. Just as Jesus went into the world to accomplish salvation, he sends his followers into the world to proclaim it. The Christian life is a commissioned, sent life. And we'll see that in two parts this morning, if you're taking notes. Just 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 two parts, and then we'll make some application that's just specific to our church as we conclude. First, we're going to see the foundation of the sent life in verses 19 to 21. Really, that's the, I might say that might even be the most important part of this message, the foundation. What births this kind of life and fuels it? That's essential to get that. And then secondly, we'll see that the the Christian life is a sent life. And that's in verses 21 to 23. It's who we are and what we're called to, all of us. And then finally, we'll consider what it would look like to be ascending church as we just make application to UPBC. So let's consider the foundation of ascent life first. The, the setting here is that, that first Easter evening. It's Sunday night, and all kinds of crazy stuff has been happening. Were the reports true that Jesus is alive? Would the, would the Jews now be coming after us, after the disciples? The, they're in this room with the door locked, and the disciples are afraid. Verse 19 again, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the, for the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So in a sense, the disciples are here, even here, beginning a practice that we still continue to this day, even this morning, gathering together on the first day of the week, the Lord's day, to hear from the risen King Jesus, to gather to worship him, to meet with him. 
In fact, the early church often had a practice of gathering in the evening on the first day of the week and at the beginning of their time together, inviting the presence of Jesus to be with them by saying, Maranatha, O Lord, come. What a picture of Jesus coming into the assembly of his people. Lord, be with us. And he, he does. He comes, even though the doors are locked. They're going to be locked again in verse 26 when Jesus appears to Thomas. I think John is making the point that Jesus comes through locked doors, which does invite us to think about the, the glory of his resurrected body that we too will share in one day. But there's more than locked doors that Jesus is pass, passing through. The disciples are gathered in fear. Fear of the Jews. They had seen firsthand what had happened to Jesus. A public execution of one that they loved so much. And those, those violent impressions were still fresh on their minds. It would only make sense for the leaders who killed Jesus to then come after his followers to seek the same punishment for them. So this gathering is an exercise of great faith on their part. John Calvin says this, this, this example is worthy of notice, for though they are less courageous than they ought to have been, still they, not give, they don't give way to their weakness but they gather courage so as to remain together. So, beloved, we should remember, even though we are not gathered together in fear of, of what the government or what others might do to us, we should remember those brothers and sisters across the world that are. Gathered in secret all over the world for fear of what the government might do to them or what other kinds of religious leaders might do if they were to find them worshiping Jesus. Pray for courage for them. Pray for them as they consider being baptized, as they consider gathering together with God's people, even at the risk of their own lives. As you pray, remember this picture, what's happening here in this passage. Christ cannot be kept from joining his people in their time of need. He comes to stand among them and to calm their fears with the words, peace be with you. My friends, this is more than just the traditional Hebrew greeting. Hey, how's it going? Hello, peace be with you. Shalom. Because we see here Jesus, he repeats it, doesn't he? He repeats it again in verse 21. Why do you think he does that? Why do you think he's repeating this, this greeting, this sending of peace? I think the disciples are not only afraid of the Jews. Like this is the first time that they've gathered together and been with Jesus. He just shows up since everything fell apart, since they fell apart, since Peter had denied him, the others had utterly forsaken him, they, they left him. So what would your natural expectation be if, if you found yourself there then standing before Jesus, looking him in the face? Rebuke, punishment, rejection, a look, a sigh of disappointment. Their failure is in their face. Their, their shame is heavy upon them at this moment. Believer, do you feel that this morning? Any, anyone, anyone deal with that this morning? Maybe when things in your life slow down because of the holidays and you're, you're just really, really aware of the failures in your life. Really aware of the deep sadness that is lingering of your sins, 
Do you have a sense that, that if Jesus were to show up, he would, he would be disappointed with you? Do you fear that since God knows everything about you that he's going to be cold toward you, have his back turned to you? A.W. Pink says this, he says, well might he have said, shame on you. But instead he says, peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. So dear believer, hear the words of Jesus to you. Peace be with you. No matter your failure, no matter how great your sin, no matter what ministry decision you made that you regret now or wondering, was it the right thing or did I do the right decision? Did I make the right move? By faith in Jesus, you have peace. Because this is so much more than a greeting. This, this is a peace that actually flows from his atoning work on the cross. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The scars of Jesus don't just identify him as, as, as Jesus among the others who were crucified. It, I think it does actually do that. You know, especially the, the scar on his side that separates him from the others. But it's much more than that. It reminds these broken, weak, failure-prone, sinful disciples that he has come so that they could have peace with God. And he has done it. He has accomplished it. His words, it is finished, are just the beginning of the sentence. It's followed by, peace be unto you. It means, as one author put it, having put away their sins, he could now remove their fears. So there's two aspects of, of peace that Jesus brings in the gospel. The first is peace with God. Paul says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, we're going to speak about more tonight as we look at Hebrews 2. But it's the atoning work of Christ that turns away the wrath of God. Jesus did that and now calls us to receive it as a gift. Receive what he has done by faith as a gift. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of your sin, all of your failure, all of your shame washed away by the atoning, sin-destroying blood of Jesus. And so, beloved, when you doubt your salvation, when you doubt God's love for you, whether or not he could possibly love you, knowing you, forgive you, accept you, just look at the scars on the body of the resurrected Jesus Christ. He shows the disciples that he has been crucified to bring them peace with God and to take away their fears. It's the other aspect of peace that Jesus brings, not just peace with God, but the peace of God. And he's been promising that already in John's gospel. John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Again, in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
This is the, the very peace of God dwelling in our hearts. That's what Jesus purchased for you. This peace won't be found in the world. It won't be found in friends, in a, in a job, a paycheck, a spouse. He doesn't give as the world gives. It's only found in Jesus. And it's ours in Christ Jesus. And we are taught to pursue it in Christ Jesus. It's ours and pursue it, especially in prayer. Paul says, Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, beloved, in Christ you have peace with God and the peace of God. You can't just know that intellectually. Can you? Like, that's, that's cool. That's one fact among other facts in my life that I know, that I write down. The expectation of judgment and wrath because of sin is now replaced with peace and forgiveness and reconciliation with God. That's yours now. It's yours now. This is why we read that, that second half of verse 20. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Do you see how this is foundational fuel? We haven't talked about going anywhere yet. Foundational. They're not just rejoicing that Jesus is alive, but that he's their redeemer. The crucified Lord is risen. This is Jesus' intention for every believer. Joy that is rooted in the wounds of Christ in the empty tomb. So we've seen that peace precedes our commission, and now we see that joy fuels it. James Montgomery Boyce illustrates what happens when we view Jesus' commands as mere commands and instructions to follow. It would be enough to do that. He has authority. All heaven and earth, his authority has been given to him. But if we merely view it as a burden to, to complete, apart from the joy-filled peace that comes in Christ. He says this, A king commanded his subjects to come to his palace and bring their best bags. His subjects were confused and alarmed, wondering, why would the king want their bags? Many of them resented the command. So they brought their smallest bags, or even the bags filled with large holes. When they arrived at the palace, however, the king did not take their bags from them but invited them to enter his treasury and fill their bags with gold to take home. Those who had brought their largest bags to offer the king went home with an abundance of treasure, while those who came resentfully went home with little from the king. You see the, the correlation between how wide we open our heart and life to Jesus and how much he fills us with joy. This is the foundation for the Christian life. It's everything. If we don't know the grace, the peace, the joy of Jesus, we will come reluctantly, begrudgingly to the calling of Jesus. 
He asks for everything from us so that he can fill us and fill our lives with the treasure of knowing and loving and following him. But if we withhold ourselves from him, from from meditating on the scars and the, the, the peace that comes from what he's done for us, if we stiff arm that, we will also stiff arm the commission. Or we'll just do it with great bitterness. We'll, we'll do the bare minimum and, and hate it in our hearts. In contrast, look to Jesus. We see here, Thomas Goodwin says this, when a believer, though, but by faith sees the Lord Jesus Christ, it begets a joy which is unspeakable. All the joys in this world are mean things, things that a man can be ashamed of, but this is a magnific joy, full of glory. So, beloved, more than a sermon on missions, this is simply an encouragement to worship. Look to Jesus. He stands in our midst, the nail-scarred, risen Savior that bestows peace. And the overflow of a life that knows that peace and worships that king is a life that will be sent into the world, that hopes others would also know and worship and find unending satisfaction in Jesus as we have. That's what we'll turn to next. Number two, the Christian life is a sent life, a sent life. And my prayer is just that we'll see this as a natural progression in our lives, in the believer's life. Jesus' atonement grants us peace. That peace fills us with supernatural, invincible joy. And it's out of that joy that we go into all the world with the good news. So what we have in verse 21 is John's record of the Great Commission. He, He takes us into the room with the crucified, risen Jesus, standing among his disciples And we read there in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You have peace with God. You have the peace of God. Now, just as the Father has sent me into the world, I am sending you. That parallel is helpful as we think about what our mission is, what we're sent to do. John's favorite designation of Jesus is the sent one. He comes in perfect obedience to his father into the world. Jesus didn't wait for us to come to him. We never could. He took on flesh and entered our existence. Fully God and fully man, he came. He took the form of a servant, even unto death. He laid down his comfort to come to us, to where we were. He didn't just tell us what to do. In order to please God, he took on human existence. He entered into our world to live a life that was pleasing to God so that we might be credited with his righteousness by faith. This is why Christmas is so essential to the gospel. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But he goes on, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so now Jesus says, as the father has sent me, just as the father has sent me, so I send you. 
Just as I was sent to bring eternal life to the perishing, now I am sending you to announce the good, the good news that I have brought and accomplished to the perishing. Just as I am not of this world, I am separating you out as children of God to not be of this world, but to go into the world and preach the good news. John 17, 16, they are not of this world, Jesus prays. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. In the incarnation, Jesus identifies with the world without entering into the world's sin. We too are to be in the world, but not of the world, so that we can preach the good news to the world. Jesus says, just as I was sealed and anointed with the Holy Spirit, now I anoint you with the Holy Spirit. Look even here in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I think this is best understood as a, a preview of what is about to take place in Acts 2 at, at Pentecost, where the entire church, the body of Christ, is there anointed with the Holy Spirit to carry out the mission of proclaiming the good news. And that mission that Jesus calls us to and sends us on, like his mission, is in both word and deed. As Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So just a preview of next week's sermon as we'll be thinking about particularly the, the place of good works, good deeds, as we think about caring for and ministering to the poor. But when you look at the mission of Jesus, it's, it's centered around his life and death for the forgiveness of sins. That theme is evident even here in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I don't think Jesus is, is giving the apostles authority to forgive sins. That's the work of God alone, that God does that action. But these verbs have a, have a sense of an action that has been completed in the past with ongoing results. So as the church proclaims the gospel message of forgiveness of sins, it proclaims that those who believe in Jesus have their sins forgiven. And those that reject Jesus and reject the gospel do not. Friend, that is, so, that is the truth you need to, to hear today. Understand that this Christmas. Are your sins forgiven or not? Do you trust in Jesus or not? It's as black and white as that. He has accomplished redemption on the cross. Turn from your sins and put your trust in him. Atoning death, life-giving resurrection are Jesus' chief works. Therefore, it makes sense that our chief work would be to proclaim his chief works, namely the forgiveness of sins and the renewal that Christ offers to all who believe. That's what's on offer to you this morning receiving the finished work of Jesus by faith. Turning from trusting in yourself, your sin, putting your trust in Jesus alone. Friend, if you would do that, all of your sins would be forgiven. You would be accepted by your creator, not just accepted, but adopted into his family as a child. Would you look to Jesus and receive him by faith? 
If you're here as a Christian this morning, we know from this verse and from all the other Great Commission passages in the Gospels that you, we, are sent. You're saved, you're restored, you're reconciled to God, and you are sent to make disciples of all the nations, to see that those disciples trust Jesus, follow all of his commands, follow him in baptism, unite with his body, make disciples themselves until he comes. Period. Full stop. Spurgeon's famous words come to mind. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. That man who says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or tract is an imposter. I think the context of reading that full quote is more helpful than just that one sentence that often gets read. He's not talking about international missions, is he? He means embracing all that we are, every single one of us as followers of Jesus, as ambassadors, representatives of Jesus. And if we're silent about him, it calls into question our love for him. When someone asks me, where do you want to go to lunch? It just, Cabo Bob's just comes out of my mouth. I don't have to study and meditate. It just comes because that's where I like to have lunch. But I don't ever tell anyone that. It calls into question whether I like the place or not. I think it's good or not. The ways in which we carry out our sentness will differ. Some of you will do this among unreached people groups. Some of, the, some of you are going to be doing this tonight among family members. You do this in the office, in your state and local governments, in the classroom, as a stay-at-home mom, as a pastor, as a deacon, as a nurse. Whatever your address, whatever your occupation, whatever your age, whatever your abilities, you are sent by Jesus Christ into the world to make disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. And our church will continually hold that before you and seek to equip you as we pray that God would make us ascending church. And that's where we're going to end our time this morning with just a few practical implications and applications for this year as we think about going ahead. When we speak about our mission and vision, we are not saying these are things that we've mastered. These are the things that we do really well. We are excellent at these things. We have arrived in these things. That is not what we're saying. We're saying these are the things that we see in Scripture, and with God's help, we are striving toward obedience in them. So we are prayerfully striving to be a church that not only understands John 20, 21, but asks the question, what about me? How does that work itself out in my life? It is not enough to know the verse. So in that vein, I want to just give you a list of things to, to pray for, for UPBC. Some in the very near future, some in the next year, some in the, the longer term. The list is, was much longer. I whittled it down. You're welcome. The first is a growing culture. Pray for a growing culture that sees the Great Commission 
as the main thing in our lives. As a church, that we would see the Great Commission as the main thing. Our mission at UPBC is to be faithfully urgent in making and maturing disciples as we preach the gospel from Southwest Houston to the ends of the earth. That is our stated purpose for existence. Pray that we would walk that out, that we would, that would be more than just something on paper and on our website. Pray that nothing would distract us from that. There are so many handles in 2023, 2024, in the life of our church for Satan to grab onto that could distract us. We are going to need, at this church, building improvements. We just are. (laughs) We just are. We're going to walk ahead in in seeking to do that. That's a big handle. We we are going to have new elders and deacons serving. We're going to raise up new elders and deacons to serve in our midst. We're going we're gonna to think about budget issues, church discipline issues. We're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. There's a coming election this year. All handles for Satan to just grab onto and derail us. And so I just want us to take the mentality of soldiers in a regiment in battle that don't all agree on every single thing in the world, that don't all uh, think that every, every single thing we do is right or wrong, but are together in a mission to keep the main thing, the main thing that say, we are in a fight together and pray that we would keep that, the great commission in our sights as the goal. So pray that growing culture that sees the Great Commission as the main thing. Second, and it flows from the first, just pray that we would be more faithful, more bold, more consistent in our personal evangelism. Personal evangelism. Pray that some of our neighbors, your neighbors, this year would come to know Jesus Christ. And some of you, that may just start with an invitation for coffee. It may start with just instead of pulling in your driveway, stopping and saying hello, a Christmas gift, whatever it is, but starting the process of getting to know and share the gospel and praying that some of your neighbors, family, coworkers would come to know Jesus this year. And pray for a joy when we see God answer that prayer. When we see people converted, pray for a joy that we celebrate together as a congregation. Third, pray for generosity. And by that, I mean, pray that we'd be willing to send our money and our people, our money and our people to meet the needs of others, especially the lost. If we want to be a sending church, an exporting church, exporting the gospel, we have to be willing to part with our money and our people. We have to. God has baked some of that in for us because we're right next to a university, right next to Houston Christian University. And so it's a regular occurrence that we're going to be investing, loving, caring for college students who are going to go away, go away, go away every every year. God has has brought us here. That's part of our, our ministry. So we have to be willing to invest and have an urgency about investing and then sending. And sometimes we're going to have to part with longtime members, members like Mike and Teresa Burrell. 
Uh, Mike told me today he's been a member here since for 47 years. Been, been around and in this building for 47 years. That's older than I am alive. I'm not just, I'm not saying you're old, brother. I'm just saying just the numbers. We're going to greatly, greatly miss them. Mike and Teresa, would you just stand wherever you are? I don't know where you are. I know you don't want to do this, but just stand so people can lay eyes on you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's encourage them. This is their last Sunday with us. Uh, Mike and Teresa have shown a great love for this church. This church has taken many shapes, many forms over 47 years. And you can talk to him about that later. But what they've done is not attach themselves to a particular form, but they've attached themselves to God's people and said, we're in on this people. And for that, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for their example. Pray for them. Today's their last Sunday as they are moving on to a next season of life in ministry. Pray for those that God will raise up among us who will leave, either to plant new churches or seek to see some planted in some of the darkest places in the world. Pray the Lord would prepare us for that and that we would trust him for it. That we're just opening, we're, we're saying, Lord, make us this kind of church, prepare us for this, make us ready. I want to ask you to also pray for a group of college students and, and young adults that are going to the cross conference uh, the first week in January. This is a, a missions conference for young adults. Obviously, that's why I'm going. Uh, for young adults, that was a joke. 18 to 25, and we're going to just center good preaching from the word that's going to just hold out in front of us. Here's, here's who God is, the God who sins. This is who he is, and what, how does that intersect with your life? Pray that God would just work powerfully in the hearts of all those that attend. You can actually watch live if you want. Go to the cross conference and watch it online. Just pray for the group of us that are heading January 3 to 5. Pray that God would just work and do, do more than we can ask or imagine. Pray for a new round of a perspectives class that's coming up in January. This is a class uh, for every Christian, not just for those that are thinking about uh, foreign missions or anything like that. It's a course for all of us. Um, any disciple of Jesus who'd want to better understand kind of the full picture of the gospel, the full narrative of the Bible, the culmination of our task as the church. I want to encourage you to pray about thinking about being a part of that class. It begins in, on January 14th. Just contact the office if you'd like more, more information. And Colin mentioned this Sunday is our last official day to collect an offering for Lottie Moon. It goes directly to the IMB, as he said, and you can bring in uh, all, all this coming week. You're welcome to come and, and bring in an offering. There's still time for that. This is a very direct way that you can help hold the rope for some that are going down the, the, the well, as we've said a lot. They're going down to, to bring the gospel to the unreached. This is a way for you to be a part of that. And we want to encourage you to prayerfully do that. And finally, I want to ask you to pray for this. Pray for the peace and joy of Christ to permeate our lives. Permeate our lives to the point that we could not help but share the gospel. See the gospel go out. I thought this week about the example of Jonah. His story begins with a commission from God in Jonah 1-2. God said, go to Nineveh, that great city, and go out and preach against it, against its sin. And Jonah resents the call. He, rebe he rebels and he flees. And so God arranges for Jonah to be swallowed by a great fish. And it was there in the belly of the fish picture of the grave, that Jonah realized that salvation belongs to the Lord, my salvation.
belongs to the Lord. Then he was spit out. Picture of resurrection. Death, resurrection that he's experienced. And now, having experienced God's grace himself, he's ready for the commission. So Jonah reminds us that only those who have rejoiced over the wounds of Christ's death for them can preach to sinners in the power of God's grace. I think that's often the disconnect for us in our evangelism and our love for missions and our love for those who don't know the Lord. It's just a disconnect with how much we've stared at the wounds of Jesus that's risen from the grave for us. So pray that we would be overwhelmed with it, that our hearts would be so gripped with wonder and marvel at the gospel that we would be glad, like the disciples here, when we gaze on the scars of Jesus Christ. And so this Christmas, I just want you to see yourself in that room. Jesus coming to be with you, coming to be with us. And to say with Charles Wesley, the great uh, hymn writer, arise my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. God is, God speaks, God saves, and God sins. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would minister now to us by your Spirit. Lord, if there's, if there's places in our life, in our heart, that we are keeping from you, we're keeping in hurt and pain, we're keeping in secret sin or failure or shame, Lord, would you, by your grace, just help us to open up and allow you to come in and to apply your grace to us. Help us to bring our best bags to you that you might fill them with joy and peace. And Lord, that with that, with that gladness, with that joy, you would send us. And so we pray you would apply your word to your people. You would equip your people for this, that we would, as we rejoice this Christmas, rejoice over the peace that you have purchased for us. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.